You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. Feels so Gosh, I don't I don't I was I was trying to think about this for now. I don't even know what the words are. The honor it is that you guys would let me come and share with you. I was surfing through uh, Instagram this week and I came across this video of a woman standing in front of city council and she was talking about some laws that are going through about abortion. She stood up and she said, it's clear to me that the authors of this agenda do not believe that women are strong. And she said, that is a lie. Women are strong and God made their bodies to be safe havens for their children. I just remember thinking, my goodness, what an honor to be able to participate in a, in a family that speaks, that stands up and speaks. Proverbs 31.8 says, speak up. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Man, I just want to say thank you so much for being a community that stands up, that speaks up for those who have no voice, for the unborn, for the impoverished, for the scared. It is truly... Like Mike was saying, this is not a room of hot tub Christians. I'm going to steal that. That's so good, Finn. When I was... uh when I was getting ready for today, this, I, I was supposed to talk in a couple of weeks, and um, uh, Alex, or Pastor Michaela, called me and said, hey, could, could you move up? Like, a lot. And uh, I said, sure. I was like three, I was actually, actually going to be at a different church today, and three hours before Pastor Michaela texted me, they said, we're going to have to reschedule. We're not sure when. It got canceled. And then about three hours later, Pastor Michaela said, okay, God is clearly, okay, I don't know what's going on. But God's doing something good. And this, uh, the words of Jesus where he says, I am, have just been on my heart. So I was just like, yes, go. Let's do it, Michaela. And a couple of days ago, Alex caught, texted me. He said, Brian, we just, we don't need all the data, but we do need your message title. And I said, I should, I should figure out what that is. And I said, what have you guys been talking about? And he said, we've been talking a lot about prayer. I said, okay, how about praying like I am? And I thought... I thought that the Lord was saying, let's talk about how to pray like the I am. But God kind of knocked me over. He had a whole different message. That we are supposed to pray like you are the I am. That we are supposed to become the embodiment of the word of God. That we walk around with these false identities day in and day out. And when somebody like Pastor Leanne stands up in city council and public and says, we do not believe in an agenda that thinks women are weak. What she's saying is not only were we, are we going to fight for the unborn, we believe something about the women in this city that they're not ready to believe for themselves, but we're going to stand up and say, you are stronger than this. You are better than this. You can rise to the challenge of your responsibility, and you can step into who God has made you to be. I didn't even, I didn't even plan on saying that. I don't know what's going on right now. This actually, uh, this month is kind of fun. I, I, was, I realized this when I was thinking about, um, when, I was, when I was thinking about 9 a.m., I realized that this, I think, this is the 10-year anniversary of my first half marathon, which is uh, kind of a big deal for me. Because when you grow up and you don't see yourself as an athletic person, 
That's not, you know, yourself, that's not part of your self-image. Other kids do that, right? Like other boys go out for football, other boys go out for baseball. That's not really who I am. I grew up with a a dad who is a computer nerd, and that is not, I know some wicked fit computer nerds. That's not a critique (laughs) of engineers, but that's just not my dad. So you know when when something isn't really a part of your identity? And it's not just, you can tell, you can tell somebody's level of security with how comfortable they are with things that they don't do, right? If I can just be like, man, you ran a half marathon, it's amazing, good for you. If I have to be like, man, got a lot of free time, huh? <laughs> like if I, if I have to cut you down a little bit, I remember I'd like, I'd like put on sports and my dad would be like, man, well, I guess if you can't read, you can... <laughs> And it's just this subtle message that that's something other people did. And when you avoid something, when you avoid something, you practice a fear of it. And so I grew up and I avoided sports. I got a class ring from my high school. I don't have a little football on the side of my class ring from high school. I got a little chess piece. I I probably played chess seven times, but I was like, I got to be a part of a club, so I'm going to do that because that doesn't require anything that would be vulnerable, anything that would show just how weak I am and how uncoordinated I am. So either way, about 10 years ago, about 11 years ago, actually, I was planting a church with my wife. We were not planting the church. We were part of a church plant. And uh, there was a guy that came into our life for just about a year. He was a really good friend of ours, and his friendship was in and out. He, he moved on to the East Coast. He was practicing. He was in school to be a physical therapist. His name was Ivers. And I remember Ivers was this really fit guy, and I looked up to him because he was incredibly kind. He's the kind of guy that was a little bit too cool to be my friend. And I remember just being like, he was so warm, and he was so kind. He's really fit, and he was, like, really passionate about God. He was really passionate about helping people heal their bodies. And... Uh, I remember him telling me one day, oh, dang, I just realized my, my marathon's like a month out. I got to start training for it. Because he was that kind of guy who could like start training for the marathon like a month before it started. I was like, oh, my gosh, dude, that's so cool. I would love to do something like that. He's like, why don't you do it? Oh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you don't know me. I was about, at the time, I was like 60 pounds heavier than I am now. I had never run a day in my life. I avoided pee like the plague. That was probably the last time I ran was like when I limped across, convinced that I had some sort of genetic asthma or something. I, I don't have <laughs> asthma. But we talked about it for a couple of minutes, and I told him, no, 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 that's for other people. That's not for people like me. And the next Sunday, he showed up for church, and he walked over, and he handed me the stapled packet of paper. And he said, Brian, this is a couch to, one, to, couch to half K training plan. First of all, why do they call it couch to half K? That is not an inspiring title. It's a little bit of an ouch. But I was like, dude, I'm telling you that I'm not, this is not for me. He said, just do two weeks. Just do the first two weeks. And so I read the dead one, day one, it said like walk two miles. I'm like, okay, I can do day one. And then I flipped forward, you know, to like day 14. And it was like walk 10, run two. I'm like, okay, I'll do two weeks if that will appease you. And I did the two weeks. And by the, by the two week mark, you're like, I just ran three miles. Well, I walk ran three miles. I kind of didn't think my body, I thought my heart would like explode at like mile two and a half. And it kind of feels good. Maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do one more week. Maybe I'll do one more week. Maybe do one. And nine months later, I completed a half marathon. And you know what the best part about that? I thought this would be like a pretty dope check 
like box to check. Like I, I did something. I did something that was pretty cool. What I didn't expect is it changed the way that I view myself. Oh, wait a second. I, I couldn't have even told you before I did this. I precluded myself from a whole category of who I am. I like physicality, athleticism, um, competing. That's for other people. But I would have never taken that risk. I needed somebody like Ivers to say, hey, Brian, this is something I feel really confident in, and I see it in you. I needed a mirror. I needed somebody to look at me and say, I see you better than you see yourself. And he gave me the courage to look like a fool and like wobble. If you guys ever see me, I kind of look like a tranquilized giraffe. I kind of like wobble when I run. But I can go for, I can go for miles. But it's wobbly. But what I didn't know, what I do now, what I didn't know at the time was what Ivers was doing for me is what a clinical, what in clinical work we call mirroring. Mirroring is when, not when I tell you about who you are, it's when I reflect back to you because of the way that I hold you in my heart who you are. So when we... When we look into mom's eyes as a little baby, we don't even have language yet, right? Mom can't teach me I love you because those words, auditory symbols, don't even mean anything to me. All I need her to do is look at me with delight, and my brain starts to internalize, I am delightful. Not just that I'm loved, but I am lovable. There's something about me that's intrinsically lovable, and we call that mirroring. And there's a passage in James chapter 1 verse 22, where I would not have been able to read this passage the way that I'm reading it right now. I wouldn't have been able to, even two weeks, it would have never even struck me. Well, and I thought God was like prompting me to pray like Jesus prayed. He was prompting me to do something different. James, James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So we have to pause right now and we have to like Take in what that's saying. We can go to God's word and deceive ourselves. We can go to God's word and we can give ourselves a little spiritual cookie and we can check a box and be like, oh, look what I did. I have my quiet time. Or I can tell Pastor Jurgen, I can, I can tell Pastor Matt that I have my quiet time. And I can actually deceive myself. Y'all, the word of God is dangerous. Not only will it mess up your sin, but if I handle it incorrectly, I can actually deepen my own self-deception. If I approach God's word like Instagram and I'm flipping through just to numb out, I'm flipping through to like give myself a little emotional high and then I walk away and I lose my temper or I hide parts of my life from my friends and my family or I step back into the way of the world, this actually becomes harmful to me because now I'm equipped with the truth and I'm not using it. Does that make sense? So, the, so James is saying, y'all slow down because you are getting this great teaching. Nobody in the history of the world has had access to the kind of teaching we have access to right now. And how easy is it to go through there, flip through YouTube, spend an hour and a half just getting these nice little nuggets? We don't even listen to the whole message, do we? We just listen to that six-minute thing where you got really excited, and it feels super inspiring. It's like, I feel less crappy about my life. And then we go back to whatever we're doing. All right. He goes on to say, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a what? God's word is a mirror. God's word is a mirror. Every single time you look into God's word, you are looking 
into your attachment figure. You are looking into the face of a father who loves you. And the question is, will we let ourselves experience it? In the same way that I don't have to teach my four-month-old daughter when I'm looking at her and I'm loving her and I'm making googly eyes, I don't have to, to teach her how to speak before I can communicate to her I love her. She is having a nervous system level experience of my love by my tone of voice, by my facial expression, by the, the feeling of my arms, right? She is learning that I love her in her nervous system. What we do is we get really sophisticated and we think all I need to do is like read the words. But information without experience will never equal transformation. Information without experience will never equal transformation, which is why when God is doing something in your heart and the pastor up here or the host up here is saying, come down, receive prayer, get up. Why? Because God can reveal something to you in your seat, but until you look into somebody's eyes and you say, I have hurt, I have been scared, I have told myself a lie, I have sinned, and they say, I see you, I love you, I break the power in Jesus' name with that. Until you have an experience of that truth, it doesn't equal transformation in your life. I'm going to run out of time. Okay. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it says like someone who looks at himself in the great mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Y'all, we didn't all have good mirrors when we were little. We didn't all have good mirrors. I was working with um, a really... Let me pause and take a step back. I try and tell my kids I love them a hundred times a day. And what, one thing I try and remind myself of is my kids actually don't need me to tell them that I love them as much as they need to feel me enjoying them. Does that make sense? My kids need more than they need to hear me say again and again and again, I love you, because if that is incongruent with my behavior, that becomes painful and it becomes traumatic to hear again, I love you, I love you, I love you, but it's not actually seen in my, what my kids need to feel me do, preach that. This is a good word. I feel like it's... What my kids really need to feel me do is enjoy them, is delight in them, is to laugh at their jokes, to have fun playing with them, to get on the floor and roll with them because they have an experience like, oh, I'm, I'm delighted in. Just about two weeks ago, my, uh, we recently, um, thank you, COVID, we recently uh, added to our garage a few pieces of exercise equipment. And so now I'm feeling pretty awesome. I can wake up. I can like drink a thing of caffeine and like 15 minutes later, still got sleep in my eyes and I'm, I'm lifting weights and stuff. And uh, it's kind of new and shiny. So the girls get really excited about it. I have two daughters and they, they usually fight over like who gets to climb on um, the jungle gym slash weight rack in our garage. And there's particularly frustrating morning. Like I was, I was like really slowly getting through this thing I was trying to do. And the girls were fighting over it. And I pulled Livy aside and I said, sweetie, you've got to stop fighting with your sister. And I did something because I was frustrated because I was feeling overwhelmed in that moment. I did something that was just, it was just meanness. Is what I, and we've, I've, I think most parents have done this right. We speak as if we're the kid, right? We say like, um, too bad you, you got off the jungle gym, so scotcha sucker, I'm going to take it from you. And I just reflected, my, I reflected back to my daughter 
this mean version of herself. And as I was talking to her, she stood up and she started walking away. I said, excuse me. And she said, no, I am not going to sit here and be talked to like this. (laughs) Right now, I'm like, real recognized, real girl. That's right. You keep it. That's the way you act right there. But at the moment, I was really frustrated. I said, okay, 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 this, okay, okay, sit down, okay. And then I went, I cooled down for a second. I was like, I'm sorry for the way that I talked to you, but that is not okay. And then she went to school, and in the quiet of her being gone, it like like really started to sink in, like, that was mean. I really just treated my daughter with meanness. And she came home from school six hours later, and as soon as she comes in, she's like, she forgot all about it. She's like totally moved on. She's in a great place. She's telling me about her day. I'm like, hey, Libby, can I talk to you? And I pulled her aside into her bedroom so we could be private. I was like, hey, the way that I talked to you this morning was not okay. The way that I talked to you was mean, and you're worth more than that. I don't ever want to talk to you that way. And my eyes started filling up. I said, when you stood up and walked away from me, I'm proud of you. I don't want you to ever let a man talk to you the way I was talking to you this morning. Because I am the mirror that shows her what to expect from masculinity. And if I teach her to tolerate verbal or emotional abuse, guess what she's gonna find when she grows up? She's gonna find a man that treats her that way. And I'm gonna say, don't you ever tolerate that. If somebody talks to you, you get up, you walk away, and you say, you know what, when you're ready to treat me with respect, maybe we can continue continue this conversation. The, the reality is that when our mirrors fail us, when we're growing up and our mirrors fail us, that we internalize, we internalize the message that we get from the mirror. So what that means is, if my caregiver, when I'm really young, says, you are so wonderful, I love you so much, you are so worthy of joy. If they, if they give me those messages, my prefrontal cortex hasn't come pr- completely online. So I don't do the work of reflecting on, am I really lovable? I just say, I am lovable. <laughs> and it works the other way too. If, my, if the message, and it doesn't have to be the words, right? It can be my posture. It can be my tone. It can be the way that I look at you. It says, you are bad. You are, you are a burden. You are frustration. My brain doesn't have the ability. Like, if I said that to my wife, Sarah, she'd be like, you need to check yourself. (laughs) But my eight-year-old daughter, her brain just says, I am bad. It just passively receives that. And this, what we call a self-image or a self-concept starts to form. And what you call that experience is it's actually the formation of a new emotion. It's what I would call a foreign occupant. A new emotion forms when the problem that needs to be solved is not my behavior, not a choice that I made, not feeling overwhelmed by emotions. The problem that needs to be solved is me. We call that shame. And when we internalize shame, we grow up and we have this emotional experience our brains don't know what to do with. Our brains know what to do with every other emotion. If I'm feeling happy about something, my brain knows what to do. It releases serotonin. I feel really good in my body. My nervous system is calm. My digestive tract is full steam ahead, right? My body's just functioning as normal. If I'm feeling angry, my body knows what to do with that. Like maybe I see, I see somebody being aggressive with my kids, right? First thing that's going to happen is my brain or my thyroid is going to release a whole bunch of adrenaline. 
That's going to tell my body that there's, there's a danger nearby. There's going to be all this cortisol in my system, and blood's going to get rerouted to my muscle structure. Why? Because I don't know what this fool's about to do, and I'm going to walk over to my kids, and I'm going to be like, hey, that's not okay. My body knows what to do with anger. If I'm feeling scared, my body knows what to feel with fear. My, my eyes dilate. My limbic spin lights up, and it starts to look for the danger so I can protect myself. Your body doesn't know what to do with shame because the threat is not external. The threat is who you are. And so what happens is all of those same self-protective systems get alerted, but we have nothing to do with it. I was recently working with a young mom. She's a mom of a couple of kids. She came in because she keeps getting stuck in her relationship with her husband. She's like, I get overwhelmed, and I just get really reactive, and I yell, and I say mean things. We start to peel back the layers. We start to dig, and we find out that she did not have a mirror. She did not have a good mirror. She had a mirror. And worse than that, just like it says, do not listen to the word and don't do it because you deceive yourself. Her father was a pastor and a narcissist. And so when he was angry with my client, he wouldn't just express anger. He would religiousize that anger. And he would say, he would teach her, man, if you want to be close to God, if you want to be good, if you want to be godly, you have to reject this experience you're having. You have to reject the pain you're feeling or the anger. It's not godly. You need to reject all that because that's something wrong with you. And you need to just behave the way I expect you to behave. And then you grow up. And we're talking about this. We're talking about, wow, every single time I get overwhelmed, way before that happens... This pain rises up, and before I even realize I made a decision, I reject that pain. I dissociate from it. I push it away. I pathologize it. I vilify the thing I'm feeling. Because why? Because I think that will allow me to be a good mom. If I just reject the anger, if I reject the pain, if I reject the sadness, it'll free me up to behave in the right way. And this is what she said. Her, her face dropped into her hands. She started crying, and she said, it will never lead to love. Self-rejection will never lead to love because the way we mirror anybody else in our life always stems from the mirror that we have from God. The reason I think God gave me those words, praying like I am, is because some of us didn't have a good mirror and we need to live ourselves into a new one. If we live in the age of Instagram, I'll call it that. Y'all are going to think I'm anti-Instagram, but I swear I'm not. Where we have, we have access to endless distraction, endless pithy little nuggets of spirituality, things that make us feel really good, and we don't apply them, we actually get deeper and deeper into that, like we were talking about before, that self-deception. And there's this incredible verse in 1 Corinthians. It's this really short little... Short little passage that buried in there. It says, I think it's uh, 415. It says, you may have 10,000 teachers in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. You know, a teacher tells you about something. A father gives you an experience of it. A teacher tells you about your worth. He tells you about how to engage in a profession. Or it tells you about history. It tells you about a father sits in the pain with you. A father walks with you. A father mirrors back to you who you are. And we have this Instagram feed. We have these distractions in our life that are telling us about. And it's actually, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing, we have never seen such high rates of adolescent female anxiety 
suicide, they're all on the rise. Why? We're getting deeper and deeper into isolation with these false feelings of connection. So what do we do with this? If we go back to that passage in James chapter 1, verse 25 says, but whoever looks intently, everybody say intently, intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but what? Doing it, having an experience of it. They will be blessed in what they do. Why will they be blessed in what they do? Is because they are becoming it. You know, when you think about, when you think about, um, the word being flesh, that's a really, it's really nice language, right? It's very poetic. It's very kind of otherworldly. It feels very supernatural. I mean, it feels very ethereal. But when I was studying neurology, something occurred to me that had never occurred to me before. Can I show that picture? This is a picture of a neuron. Everybody say, hello, neuron. That circle in the middle is a neuron, it's a cell. Those, uh, those little sleeves going off of those little canals, those are dendrites that lead to synapses. Synapses are the little gateways that connect it to other neurons. As neurons, uh, or as our brain has human experiences, as we watch that movie that made us laugh, or we get yelled at by our parents, or we uh, score the winning shot, our brain is connecting these neurons and it's connecting meaning. Meaning is the way that these neurons are connected. And what's really incredible is each of those little neurons, each of those little circular centers only have so much of the energy that creates the neural pathway. I, I swear this will go someplace applicable. I like to nerd out. Um, it only has so much energy to create those neural pathways with, which means if a new neural pathway introduces itself, for me to build that connection, I actually have to take energy away from another connection that I'm maintaining, and I have to build a new one. So if I, from a very young age, learned that I am not good at athleticism, and I thought, oh, that's just a part of who I am, that's, that's an unchangeable quality, that's just who I am, I'm not good, and I start to jog once a week, or twice a week, or I think this program had me like four or five times a week, Every single time I do that, my brain is making a decision to reroute. It's called neuro growth factor. I love that term because the fact that they call it factor, it's like we don't know what it is. But we know that there's only so much, and we know that it's what causes the connection. Every single time I get up and I run, I'm actually starving the neurosynapse that says I'm incapable. I'm starving it by taking that energy away and redirecting it towards the belief right? I can read a book that says I am capable of a marathon, or I can get up and I can become I am capable of a marathon. Even if all I do is like limp two miles, I am creating a new neural pathway in my brain. You guys want to see that in real time? Can you show that little clip? It doesn't look like much, but what you're seeing is neural growth factor being redirected and boom, the old self becomes the new self. Did you see that? Can we play it one more time? Neural growth factor starving, receding, and reconnecting to a new neural pathway and a new belief system is deepened. When we talk about the word becoming flesh, do not, experience, do not confuse that with some ethereal kind of poetic language. We are talking about your body becoming in alignment with the very word of God. You become the power of God on earth. The kingdom of God becomes manifest in a place like this. That's real. There's this incredible, if you read that same book, James, just a couple of chapters later, he says this. He says, very, very, I tell you, the Son of God can do nothing 
by himself. This is Jesus talking. He can only do what the Father sees him doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. There's no variation. There's no new narrative. There's no, oh, that didn't apply to me. Whatever the Father does, the Son mirrors him. He says, I'm going to be what you say I am. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to embody. I'm going to walk out. I'm going to live out the words that you say about me. Because Jesus understood being fully God, but also fully limited to your human limitations, which is the most beautiful, loving miracle in the history of mankind. He understood that the only way I become who I am is to embody, is to live, to walk, to do, to experience who I am. What does that mean for us? That means before Jesus prayed verbally, you know, it says Jesus had a habit. He used to go off alone for hours and he would sit in silence and cry out to his father. That was a verbal prayer time. But Paul teaches us that Jesus actually prayed without ceasing. Prayer time was not a time of day. It wasn't he got up early. That was, that was a sacred prayer time for him. But his prayer never ceased. Right. How is that possible? It doesn't mean that it's like he's trying to check out with the bank teller. and the, sir, sir, what did you want? And he's like, holy Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Oh, I'm sorry, what did you need? He's not trying to do verbal gymnastics all day long. He is living yes. prayer. He's saying, what is my motive for going into the bank? What is my motive for going to work? What is my motive for loving my child? It is to be and embody and reflect who Christ is. His life becomes a prayer. And he came down not just to show us what God is like. Jesus came down to show you what you are like. It says that he was the new Adam, the new archetype, the new blueprint. So you could see an untarnished mirror of what your true nature is. Does that make sense? But I think God wants all of us to understand that when we say I'm, my mission, my goal, my aspiration is to pray like I am, not just we're going to take on the prayer form of the I am, who Jesus was, but we are going to pray like that's true about me. You know, when I was coming through the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life was trying to heal from infidelity, the infidelity that I committed against my own wife. And if you had told me, Brian, can you see it yet? Can you see the other side of this mountain? Can you see the other side of the valley? Can you see your marriage restored? No, but I get up every day and I'm going to pray like I am. I can pray. I'm going to live. I'm going to wake up like that's true. I can't see it yet. I don't believe that I can complete a half marathon. I can't picture it yet. My body's too weak. It hurts too much. But I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to run like I am. Yes. You know, maybe you're stuck, man. You feel really stuck in your your spiritual life, your marriage, your workplace, you feel really alone. I hear that so much. Men feeling just unbelievably alone, feeling like destiny skipped over them. You think, man, I keep praying, I keep working, I keep trying, nothing's showing up. You get up at 4.30 on Tuesday morning. I don't care if you bring any words to men's prayer. You show up at 5 o'clock in the morning and your life your crusty eyes, your bedhead is a prayer of embodiment. You bring that self, you bring that energy to men's prayer, and you tell me, you, you let me see if God doesn't do something. I want to pray for you guys. I want to pray that this would be true in all of our lives. But let me just pause and encourage that as we're talking about this, 
if, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, if the Holy Spirit is activating, it's waking up some pain, that pain is not the pain of shame, which our brains can easily confuse. The, the enemy can just swoop in when we feel that, when we feel that deficit, when we feel that, oh man, I thought I'd be somewhere else. I thought I would look like a better parent than I have in my life, or I thought I'd be a better spouse, or I thought my work would be in a different place. That pain is not shame when the Holy Spirit wakes it up. What that pain is, it's, it's letting you know you're out of alignment. God wants to bring you into alignment. It's, that pain is never condemnation. That pain is always an invitation. So let me just encourage you, if pain is waking up right now, that's something to rejoice about. You're not alone in it. It's scary to be, to be alone and in pain with no resources, but that's not true this morning. Today, you have the Holy Spirit and you are surrounded by men and women who love you, who want to see you, who want to hold your hands, who want to look into your eyes. You can't see the finish line, but I can see it and I'm gonna hold your hand like we are. Amen. Man, I just encourage you, raise your hands. God, we thank you that it is never too late for a mirror. We thank you that no matter what we had access to in our childhood, that you are here right now in our very chest to show us that you love us, to give us an experience of who we truly are, Lord. I pray that we would open our hearts, Lord. I pray any fear that is in this room, any fear that anybody is carrying, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would bind that fear and give them the courage to step through that door, to give them the courage to believe that maybe my life could be different, my heart could be different, my identity could be different, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are the source, that even in our pain, you wept with us. And now in our restoration, you wanna guide us. Lord, I pray for every marriage in this room. If there is a marriage in this room that is suffering from fear, fear that something's gone wrong, fear that they're beyond hope, fear that they're beyond restoration, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to their heart right now and say, this is for you. That your story about them is one of reconciliation and restoration. That if they don't know how what they're going through, I don't care how ugly it is, if they don't know how that's a story of your restoration, then they don't understand the story yet. We surrender to you and we love you, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.